Shamari, welcome back to the podcast. Um, you can get podcast, H-Hour podcast merchandise at shop.charliecharlie1.com in case you didn't know that. And you can support me um, in what I do with this podcast and with my other podcast, the Leading Minds series. You can support me uh, and become an ultra fan, uber fan, part of a niche little group of ultra fans uh, by signing up at patreon.com forward slash HK podcasts. Easy peasy. I'd like to thank my latest Patreon supporter, or one of my latest Patreon supporters, I should say, a guy called Mike Dixon. Mike Dixon, Dixon has listened, been listening to the podcast for a while. He's recently taken the leap and joined joined that ultra group, that group, that ultra group, that group of ultra fans on the Patreon and uh, the Patreon um, supporters community, I should say. They get uh, they get access to all the podcasts before anyone else and they get some other little perks and, and prizes. So um, yeah, patreon.com forward slash HK podcasts. Nice and simple. Sponsoring the podcast today are Rugby for Heroes. Rugby for Heroes have been going since 2009 when they were established in the wake of the death of Private Joe Whitaker, who was sadly killed on operations serving with the Parachute Regiment in Afghanistan in 2008. Rugby for Heroes, they organise events to raise money for military charities and military causes, and they have raised over £110,000 since their inception. Now, you may think, well, over 10 years... Now, you would expect that amount to be raised over 10 years. Well, you would if there was events being run week in, week out, month in, month out. But Rugby the Heroes organise very few events a year, but high quality. They started off with just one event a year for several years. And now it's extended to expanded to two or three events a year. Like I said, high quality things like rugby matches, beer and gin festivals, supper clubs, and things like that. Rugby orientated to support the military community. And, uh, yeah, man, over £110,000 raised for military causes. They've supported me in the past, and they supported some of my ex-colleagues in the past, and they continue to do so now. They have got events planned, obviously. They had events planned, but the, all those dates have been knocked to the right, okay? You need to keep an eye on Rugby for Heroes to see when those events are going to be back on. So you need to go to rugbyforheroes.org, rugbyforheroes.org, or follow them on social media, at rugby number four heroes. Thank you to Mike and everybody there. You, your support is very much appreciated and very, very valuable. Invaluable, I shall say. Also sponsoring the podcast today are the Aardvark Group. The Aardvark Group have been around since 1982 and they aim to clear the world of unexploded ordnance and mines. That is a huge task, a huge undertaking. And uh, they've been, like I said, doing it since 1982. They started out with the express objective of developing a man- mechanical landmine clearing system, which would meet the design criteria which Aardvark's founders considered to be the prime critical factors. So, for the clearance of all known anti-tank and anti-personnel mines, um, using mechanical and manual means. The design team found that while the actual flail clearance process would be very effective for both applications, the prime mover would need to be unique each application. So Aardvark concentrated its design capabilities on the landmine clearance process which would best suit the post-conflict and humanitarian clearance areas. And so they chose a rotating chain chain flail system is what they chose. The consequence of their design philosophy has been to produce the most effective specialised vehicle for the destruction or detonation of landmines while permitting the flail system to be adapted for attachment onto a minefield breaching machine. 
Aardvark do a huge amount to support the military community. They employ a significant proportion, a significant proportion of their company is, are, not is, are military veterans. And uh, they obviously, the work they undertake around the world is hugely valuable, helping protect people, property and assets against the threat of unexploded ordnance and legacy minefields. Go to aardvark.group to find out more about Aardvark, or you can follow them online. They're on Instagram, they're on Twitter, they're on LinkedIn, they're on Facebook. They are, they're everywhere. They're everywhere. They love the social media. The Aardvark Group, search for them on social media. Thank you to David and everybody there. My guest today is Aaron Bartle. Aaron Bartle is the founder, owner, operator of uh, Intemperance Knives. They make tactical knives for uh, military applications and uh, other other cool shit. Um, and he's a former submariner, served on a, a few uh, a few boats, one of which was HMS Triumph. He left he left the service in 2019. And uh, ever since then, he's been steering his own ship with intemperance knives. This was an absolute uh, pleasure of a conversation. I learned a lot about uh, submariners and how special in the various connotations of the word they are. Uh, this is the H Hour podcast. My name is Hugh Keir, and my guest today is Aaron Bartle from Intemperance Knives. Enjoy. Now we're on. Now I can hear myself. Uh, why? Why did you decide to join up in your early thirties? Why would you? Why? Right. <laughs> I've got loads of whys. <laughs> We've only been chatting for like ten. Yeah. Minutes. I've got lots. Of, I've got lots of questions. Yeah. So you had a really well or a good playing paying job. Yeah. Good paying job, and yeah. you went. Uh, I think I'll go on to a thousand pound a month and become a, a submariner yeah. in the navy. Yeah. At the, at, in your thirties. When you say in your thirties, how old were you? Yeah. So I think I was 31. So I, I'd been in... Um, were, you, were you dropped on your head as a child? Uh, uh, possibly. <laughs> I mean, at that point, I was, um, you know, I'd been in oil and, oil and gas for eight years, nine, eight, coming on nine years. So, you know, I was well established in the, in the corporate world, as you'd like to, like to say. But, you know, I think we we touched on it earlier you know i my my grandfather who was a, a big influence in my in my life was you know like a lot of that generation was um you know in world war 2 um you know he had a lot of stories from uh, from that time and um also some other family from that generation was lost during during that war so it's certainly growing up you know there was a lot of war stories around i'd grown up with a lot of interest in in the military i think because of that and, you know, I just always regretted not joining the military when I was younger. You know, I, I wanted, I would have liked to have done it in my 20s. Um, circumstances at the time, I didn't, I was talked out of it. Um, so I didn't do it. And the, just, the, just the desire to, you know, serve my country and be part of the, you know, be part of the military and to, to give something back to the country um, just never went away. And, and, and the, and the, the better I got paid in the oil and gas industry, and the more I saw the corporate side of of life, the more I hated that, and the more I just wanted to do something more meaningful, or offer myself more with better job job satisfaction, shall we say? That that was like the main, I think, the main drivers for it. 
Yeah, that's interesting. That is extremely different to most people that join up. Most people that join up are obviously 16, 17, 18 years old, most of them, yep. right? And they got zero, co- I'm talking about myself here as well, zero corporate experience. They don't have that, they don't have that over, over uh, that, that ex- yeah, experience of it. And they join up because, uh, well, a bunch of reasons, one or more of these, lack of options, um, Lack of options, lack of uh, and uh, like a, 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 a real keen desire to do something in every street. Like, like you grow up and your parents are doctors, you're probably going to be a doctor. Yeah. You know, you, you got you know, it's like and well, case case in point, you grew up with a heavy military um, influence in your life. Yeah, you you ended up at 31, you know, yeah. joining up the serve. Like I had no one uh, in military in my in my family. They were all Second World War, yeah, but not in my immediate family. Yeah, or any of my family really. And then I joined up because it was really, for me, it was lack of options and a couple of other reasons. Um, but uh, do you think you found it harder or easier being in training compared to your counterparts? I'm assuming their ages were <coughs> like 16, 17, 18-year-olds. Right? Yeah, I mean, I, there was myself, a couple of older guys in the, in the, in the intake when I, when I went through uh, rally. Was, um, there was another guy who'd been in the, uh, in the army had gone outside and then come back in uh, via the navy. So he, you know, he was a little bit older. But I, you know, I think I found it easier because mentally, I think I was in in a, in a you know mentally stronger than some of the younger guys in 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 certain ways because you know you've got that life experience to to draw on, so you can try and you know sort of understand uh, things better and and the whole training setup and the regimes on how it's designed to work. You can sort of see that for what it is rather than letting it affect you thinking oh fucking hell this is shit or why am i doing this or why you know so i think it was easy in that respect physically you know i was in reasonable condition you know i played rugby um national conference rugby league uh most of my adult life um you know i like to stay in shape so physically i didn't find it too demanding but <laughs> it's funny because the the uh the divisional officer sort of week one pulled me aside and said you know we, we do find with older guys that you know, give it a couple of weeks, and your your body will <laughs> your body will give up on you, and you know we don't expect you'll be here. But I was like, nah, well, that's not me. But you know, they, so they obviously have a have a an awareness of of that the, the the physical side for older guys. But you know, I, I found it all right. I enjoyed it. What was the uh, what was the physical side like? So HMS Rally is is the HMS Rally where all is that like phase one for all naval recruits? Yeah. So HMS Rally is for enlisted naval recruits. And if you were going to go straight into a commission, then you would go to Dartmouth. To where? Uh, Dartmouth. Dartmouth. Yeah. Sorry, excuse my ignorance. So the naval, na- the the naval college. Yeah. So they have a naval college there, and then the, the enlisted guys go in, um, go in at, at Raleigh. And again, you know, I did look at, at, at going in commission, but I think I don't know partly because of my upbringing or, or the stories I'd heard from from like the military experience that I'd not experienced myself, but. A lot of the, the stories I'd had was, like, you know, the enlisted guys or the guys, the non-commissioned guys were the guys who more often than not were doing more of the actual work or action um, and, and, and got to know the job, for whatever it was, better than, you know, some of the com- commission guys. Um, you know, and I wanted to, if I was going to do something, I wanted to understand it from from the ground up. You know, I didn't want to go in at a certain level and have no understanding of, of, of basically the, the job or, you know, I wanted a, a better understanding of, of whatever the job was going to be. So, you know, I decided to, to not even look at the commission initially. 
Did you are you allowed to just choose to, to go for submariners? Because my understanding is it's it's like a specialist area of the navy. Again, excuse my ignorance. And for people who are not submariners, listening to this and thinking, oh, they're not that special. Uh, I've pretty, met, I, pretty, pretty special. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> in in many different connotations yeah, of the word. Yeah. My first experience as a submariner was. Uh, Oh God, I was a young private in three para and we did this tri-services sailing trip. It was like adventure training. Oh my God. And it was like with three, with three watches on this, it was a 55 foot, with three watches of four people. Um, all of the watches were made up of like, they were made up of power edge, toms. And yeah. then the people who were running them were, were Navy. Yeah. We had like equivalent of a Navy colonel. I can't remember what his rank was. The equivalent of, an, of a, of a we, sorry, the equivalent of an army colonel, equivalent of an army, army W01. Yeah. And there, and then there was a submariner on there, and then you had like a lot of power edge guys. I sp- I spent, I mean, we were going across the Bay of Biscay as well. Right. I spent days getting sick, like days. It was hideous. It was horrible. Um, and there was a submariner there, and he was a nice guy. And then we on the way when we finished, we had to, it was a twenty four hour ferry back from maybe so 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 oh god so Paulo somewhere in Spain to Plymouth maybe, and uh, yeah, he he, he was special drinking as well yeah he, he drank very quickly very fast heavy drinkers yeah well he, yeah. he was a heavy drinker for about an hour yeah right and then if for 23 hours he's racked out he racked out his understatement <laughs> he 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 spent it sat in the toilet fully clothed unconscious he defecated everywhere in his trousers on the toilet yeah he'd been sick all over himself and uh, he left the door open to his cabin because we had cabins and the whole of the corridors, about, I don't know, 100 meters of corridors, just stank. It was stinking. Oh, it was just stinking. Yeah. Mate, it was hideous. He probably it wanted it to, to smell like a submarine. He's probably trying to, you know, bring a bit, bring that back. Yeah, possibly. Yeah. Well, uh, my good friend Simon Piles, one of my Patreon supporters as well. And uh, in fact, and he's the quartermaster at the Forces Barbarians RFC, um, who I'm going to, if you're a rugby player, we're going to rope you into that. But um, yeah. he, he, he said, make sure, when I said they got you coming on, he said, make sure that sludge mariner uh, puts some deodorant on before he gets <laughs> in the studio. Yeah, fair one. And what, what do you think? What was the, what was the, what, what was the result when I turned up? Was I honking? Or? I'm undecided. Not, not no, I, mate, you know, no, I can't be no, The jury's out. No, not at all. Um, but the, then, back to the I, question. I had the first bath of the month for you last yeah. night. <laughs> but back to the question. Can you just choose to be a submariner? Uh, y- yes. Um, I think pretty much you can now. <clears throat> you, once you, um, in fact, I think because of the uh, the recruitment drive to get um, and retain submariners, I think you know if you were to, the, you know, I don't know what it's like with the with the other branches, but the navy at the time, you know, there was different lengths of waiting lists to get in, um, depending on your branch. So that you know, some of the branches were, were oversubscribed, and if you know to get people in submarines, often you get to the top of the list and get in quicker. Um, as a submariner um, and not only that you um, you're also offered an incentive so you're like a golden hello so if you are um, if you go I'm not sure what it's like now but 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 when I did it you um, offered a five grand bonus on qualification of becoming a submariner so once you got your dolphins you got you know five grand for less tax um, you know you got that as, a, as an incentive to get people in because you know it's not the most glamorous job in the world, and you know they struggle to, to to get people into it. So it's not a popular one, then. Not it wasn't not massively. I mean, I think it. I think they f- sound not to sound like too much like an old man again, but 
you know, I think with the with the young younger generation with like technology and wanting to be on social media and wanting to have that contact with you know the outside world because submarines are the exact opposite of that for for generally long periods. You know, I think that's a that's a big uh, drawback for getting getting people in there because you know you don't have that communication or contact. Talk to me then. Tell me what it's like in a sub, mate. So, so I, I, you asked me before the podcast, have I been in a sub? Yes, I have. So when we came back to Plymouth, I think it was Plymouth or Portsmouth, one of those P places on the south coast, right? Um, Jumper, which was the nickname of the submariner. Yeah. I can't remember his actual name. Collins, probably. What? His surname was probably Collins if he was Jumper. Why is that? That's oh, just a Jack thing, you know. If it's Collins, you're probably Jumper Collins. That's a... Do you not have that in there? Where's it In the Paris. Yeah. Well, I don't know. They just have like, uh, if you, I think it goes back to like, you know, World War One, World War Two. If there was like a famous person of the same name, then you would get that would be a nickname would become whoever that was. Yeah. And so, I, so I don't. Is Jumper Collins a famous person? And I only remember because one of my one of my best mates going through uh, submarine school was Collins, Jumper Collins, and that's how I got to hear about that date. And I think it was probably some some random old, you know, long jumper from the. You know, from the forties or something, right. some I, nonsense, I but that, uh, things like that stick. <coughs> yeah, that's why I ask. I didn't recognize the name. Yeah, <coughs> there's issues with that. Now, I've just re- like I've had issues where I, th- uh, you probably have as well, or experienced it where I thought someone's name because I'm also a bit of a moron and quite gullible. And uh, there's a guy called Billy Smart, right? Who I knew as Billy Smart for several years yeah. until I found out his name was actually not Billy; it was something else. Right. And he was he was just called it after Billy. Smart. And there's another yeah. guy recently who I've known for. Well, 2020, I've known him for at least 14 years, and I've just discovered his name isn't Billy, it's something else. Yeah. It, it, again, this, is a different, this isn't Billy Smart, this is a different Billy, yeah. right? It's something else. Mate, mental. Anyway, I digress. Okay, so Jumper Collins. Jumper so Collins. I mean Collins, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I went on to HMS Talent. Talon? Talon. Talon. Yeah. I went to HMS Talon. And if I remember correctly, that was a nuclear, no, diesel. No, talent's nu- uh, nuclear powered. Is it talent or talent? Talent. 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 I yeah. went on the talent. That was my first look at a sub. Uh, recollect, I mean, it's 2002 maybe, 2001 maybe. 2001, yeah. I think. Recollections, I, rem- I distinctly remember how small the sleeping area was. Yeah. I don't know what you call them, the bunks. Yeah, the bunks. And, th- mate, I mean, there's enough, there's enough space, if I remember, to slide yourself in onto your bed, you know, or whatever you call it, you can slide yourself in onto your bed, and then you got about a, from your the tip of your nose. If you're looking up to the ceiling, but you can't see the ceiling, the tip of your nose to then the bed above you because they're like the bunk beds, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah, three, right, three, maybe six inches. It three was high. twelve. Oh yeah, I mean you can't lift your neck up to to read a book. You know you have to rest the book on your chest at a weird angle, and then sort of just tilt your your head forward to try and get a, a look at it. It's not you know it's not glamorous in there. Talk me through life. That's in a sure. But, you Operational know, life. Tell me about it. You know, it's pretty. Um, it's pretty taxing, in in the fact that you've got you're on defence watches full time. So, it, it, you know, two you know two different submarines. Well, you know, there's different classes of submarines. But hunter killer submarines, which is what I was on, what, where you're doing, um, you know, like reconnaissance and intelligence gathering, um, that that kind of activity. And you've got the nuclear deterrent, which is the the V boats, um, which are you know the the nuclear um, the UK nuclear deterrent. So basically, they'll go out to sea for three months, <coughs> disappear, and just be, you know, just be there with the with the finger on the big red button in case things go south badly. So they they just go and they'll go and do that. And the hunter killers are a more active active bunch. 
so our watches are different so we'll do defense watches which is six hours on six hours off on rotation the whole time you're out so you know so it's, it's very difficult to get a a grasp of like normal you know days and normal days and nights because you know you're up you're working for six hours then you you then you, you know, you're eating and, and then racked out and then you're back up again six hours later so it's you know if you're out for a long period of time it's taxing on, on you you know physically and mentally you you don't know what you know what day is what's literally. the longest you did six on six off for so the, the longest single spell i think i did was maybe five weeks that's of that of that rotation and you, and you you know when you're up and working you know you are up and working it's you know it would depending what branch you are but you know it's it's you've got to be switched on you know that's hideous mate yeah. I, I um got a lot of experience with shift work from when I, I left I went out the Middle East um and I did I spent a part of it like on the ground with like protection teams and I just spent and I spent part of it managing security on site on oil and gas sites yeah. and that was that was shift work right yeah. And and I and there was also all the oil and gas guys. They were on sh most of them who weren't in the HQ. They were on shift work as well. And I got the opportunity to observe the impact of shift work on people, yeah. on myself and on others. And I there was a there was a, there was a research that came out about a year before a specific health impact research on shift work. Man, and one of the things I'm going to ask you about it in a minute. One of the big impacts of shift impacts of shift work on the health and the chances of long term chronic illness is um is when you're doing night shifts right that's just one aspect yeah. night shifts now leading on from that so leah leading on from that when you're on the sub right and you are in that sub for uh, you can go you can uh, you can go down for up to three months right yeah, like longest worst case scenario up to three months yeah you can you can in right. theory yeah do they and even just five weeks do they supplement you with your vitamins vitamin d for example well, no, not 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 unless they, they you know they point it in the water and, and not telling anyone. But it, they they no, they don't give you any kind of like supplements to, to say, look, you know, you're you're on for this period. You you know, you must take this. They don't, um, they, you know, they don't give you that. But and in fact, the water is actually worse for you than than regular tap water because they make their own water on board. It's completely pure and it's, it's free of everything so there's no you know like top water there's no fluoride in it there's no minerals in it because you know everything's been extracted out of out of it so there's demineralized water basically so you know to you know the health benefits on the health impact is you know it's pretty harsh on your on your on your body you know given that really surprises me that because it must it must impact the quality of work and productivity when because people are, it, that is not that is not obviously a healthy environment to work in and yeah. I, I it's like it might I mean people listening it might or watching it might sound like I'm being a bit oh god fucking hell you know you're in no that that kind of stuff really inhibits the way you can work and operate there was a guy um, again when I was working in Iraq it's a guy he whenever he's he was oil oil worker he used to only work when he's coming to the country you do five weeks in country and do five and then five weeks off. When he came in, he did the whole time on nights. He elected to do the whole five weeks on nights. Yeah. That bloke was like the walking dead at the end of the five weeks. Even halfway through, he was the walking dead. Yeah. And I experienced it myself as well. We used to do two weeks on nights, then four weeks on days, and two weeks on nights. I do I do an eight eight stint shift. Right. <clears throat> Here's an example of the impact of of uh, I'm preaching to convert you, but it's, it, it really it just really surprised me about that, that sub like not supplementing kind of thing. I used to do, on that two weeks and nights that I do that, right? And um, 
Long story short, when I was on days, I could have eight hours kip. Okay, I would go. To the, I would finish my shift. I'd have spare time because a twelve-hour shift, twelve on, twelve off. Finish my shift. I go to the gym for a couple of hours. A couple of hours, like long, hard work. Yeah. Then I come in. I watch a movie in bed. I have scoff in the cookhouse, and then I get my head down. I don't even need about eight hours kip. Yeah. I do that for four weeks, right? Grafting. As in gym, hammering myself because my job wasn't hard physically, right? Then I go into two two weeks or nights. It's the same for the start and as at the end. And I would come off the shift. I do the gym. I find it really hard to do anything more than an hour, okay? And then I get into bed. I would sleep for like 10, 11 hours and it wouldn't be enough because, and all that was down to, I put it entirely down to, no, almost entirely down to lack of sunlight, so yep. vitamin D. Yep. And the other one was because I was eating, when my body was used to sleeping, you can't just knock that. They call it the limbic system. I yeah, think, yeah. Right? You can't just, you can't reverse that. Even if it did like nights for three months, your digestive system, the way your body's set up, doesn't reverse. Yeah. It's still like when it's nighttime, your body knows it's nighttime and it shuts down things like your digestive system. Everything's got to sleep. So that was impacting me. And that bloke was doing it for five weeks. Yeah. He was like the walking dead. He, like we just could hardly hold a conversation towards the end of it. Yeah. Mental. Mental. Anyway, I'll have a word. I'll have a word with the Navy for you. And that's why submariners are all nails because they're, <laughs> you know, they, they're vetted out to be able to withstand that kind of conditions, you know. Did you notice anything like that? Well, like uh, health impacts kind of thing? Uh, I, I don't think so. Um, no, not directly. I mean, look, you, you do look at some guys, like you say, and they look like, you know, they've just been inside for on a long stretch and, they, you know, they come out with that prison tan. But um, yeah, no, I didn't, know, I didn't um, notice anything directly but when but then you know come to mention it when you look around and you look at like you know the senior race and the older guys who have been on for you know 20 years and they do look fucked they you know like you said they look like the walking dead but you, you see with the night shift work and that study was on about they found i'm trying to remember the numbers i'll have to look it up again but they found that your risk for example of getting diabetes type 2 diabetes yeah. went up by something like 30 percent just from doing night shifts for prolonged periods yeah that like that's a huge amount. You know, your risk of getting a heart disease went up by X amount of percent. But I can't remember the figures, but it was huge. I'm yeah. thinking, Jesus Christ. I mean, I don't know whether... You do get extra extra pay for being uh, qualified submariner. You, you, so you get extra extra pay on top of your normal naval pay for being a qualified submariner, but then also you get extra pay when you're a, when you're away on a on a boat for, for a period of time. You know, I don't know whether they, that's their way of compensating you for, you know, for, for that risk. I don't know. But, you know, you've got that. Plus... You know, no exaggeration. They're nuclear-powered boats, and you know they, you've seen how small they are. And sometimes, you know, if you're on, you know, if they if they if the boat's working really hard and they're you know their reactors flashed up, you know, burning strong, there's places you can't even sit in the mess because the radiation's that high coming through the <laughs> coming through the walls. That no. you know, you literally you'll go into the mess one day, and half of it's you know, there's a bit of yellow tape across the, the table and you can't sit in that corner because the radiation is too high, but but you're all right if you if you sit this oh side God. and have your wets. But that's Jen, you know. <laughs> some 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 days that, that that is what it's like, you know, and they won't or they won't even let you you know, the reactors um, you know, on the on the submarine, um, you know, where it is and and, and um so, sometimes you you know they won't even allow you to go, to walk over it to go to to the back because you know because the risk is like, is like too high. So like Jen Jen, there's obviously like some some nasty things going on there. That is mental. Yeah. Isn't that mental? I know. In, well, in this day, in this like risk averse day and age as well, you think you know that's brilliant how it can still be allowed to happen. But but you know the the T boats, which is a class of boats I was on, which is talent was um, Triumph, 
and that and that and that era of boats, you know, the nuclear powered, but they're inside as well. They're like an old World War Two boat, you know. There's pipes everywhere, valves, switches, and you know, it's kind of like that old school, um, what you'd imagine a submarine to to be like, and you know, and that's part of what I enjoyed about it, if I'm honest, because it is that proper like old school, um, you know, environment, and and you know, there is that. A little bit of a disregard for for health and safety because you're like, well, you know, with submariners, this is what we we do. We get on with it, you know. So yeah, and you yeah. and that's that's sort of admirable as well. You know, I can see that's at you know that 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 sort of uh, what what's it? You just get used to the hardship. This is where we do it. We're doing an important job. I yeah. can understand. I can yeah. understand. Oh, I mean, and if you look, you know, like any any military unit, you know, has their pride and their history, and I think submariners, I think they do get forgotten about a lot, especially in sort of modern. Um, warfare or modern conflicts because you, they do, you don't always hear about you know what they're doing because of the nature of what they're doing but you know they're doing you know some really early stuff and then you look at the history where you know during world war ii they lost you know if you take them if you take the submarine service as a as a, as a unit as a whole you know that the percentage of men they lost within that unit was even higher than bomber command you know the the fatality rate of, of being a submariner during the war the, the percentage of the guys they lost was was insane you know when you look they lost maybe 74 or 79 boats with you know 70 to 100 guys on each one is is in is incredible and you know churchill had that famous quote where you know he said you know of all the men and, and women in the armed forces no no man faces you know more no man has a greater commitment or faces a greater peril than than the submariners because you know if things go bad you know things go bad in a big way and you know you're not getting out of there and you know even in in modern day you still go out there with that at the back of your mind you know there's certain places you go in the sea you know if you and if you're over a certain depth or you know you're over the continental shelf and the and the oceans you know massively deep you know that if things go bad there you're not getting there's no there's no way of rescue there's no way of escape and you just you you know you're gone so i mean it is it and i think people don't get to hear about that as much which you know i think tomorrow's deserve a bit of credit for for you know for that yeah i don't know where you're gonna get the credit from I i'm not to, sure I but i am undecided yet yeah <laughs> <laughs> you know i'll just keep pointing it out there and hopefully one day i'll say yeah fucking hell submariners fair play mate they're, they're decent but um you know we're living hope don't we hey <laughs> right, i was only joking talk to me about, talk about talk about life on it so on a date like what is your first off what job did you do in the submarine um so i was in um tsm so uh, part of the warfare branch so basically uh the primary role, I guess, of that is to um, is target acquisition for you. Know, so if you're fighting the the boat, it's basically working out where you're sending the um, torpedoes, basically, or or the you the, the T-lams. So we work out the given like the fire coordinates, basically. So you you you're responsible for you know work working out what the target is. You know, you get the sonar guys who who will do the identification work you know if you're not working from visuals and they're working from sound you know they'll 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 have like the signature of whatever it is you're tracking a you know foreign carrier for example they'll, they'll probably have a bottle of being out there recorded the the signature of what it sounds like so then when you pick it up again then then they can say well you know this is pretty sure certainly this is this is that what it is and then you work out what using their um, the information fed from the sonar, where it is, 
how fast it's moving, taking into account where we are, how fast we're moving and work out a, a fire solution, basically saying like, this is the solution. Um, so a big, a big part of the role was that, but the, the, the good thing about that warfare branch was you got, you got to do navigation. So you got to do uh, navigation by radar. You got to do a bit of periscope watch keeping. So getting on the old periscope and having a, have a little nose around with that. Um, and then you got to do ship protection stuff as well. So you got to do a bit of the, the more military stuff. So, you know, the um, CQB, um, boarding ships, defending the ship against, you know, whatever that may be. So it, it, was good. it was a good balance because you got to do a bit of that, what you guys would call soldiering, I guess. But then you still got a lot of the, the maritime naval stuff as well, which was the, the main component of it. So no, I, I enjoyed that, that as a branch. What uh, what... Oh, what was the name of that branch again, sorry? Um, TSM. TSM. Yeah, so tactical, tactical Submariner, they call it. So basically, it's to do a little bit of everything with the warfare. What uh, what small arms weapon systems did you carry on the, on the boat? Were they SA-80s? SA-80s, but negative SUSATs because of the radiation risk. So you know if um, if you if you dropped one... Like and the tritium in there. Yeah, the tritium. Yeah. That, would, that could potentially poison the whole atmosphere of the boat. So you, so you had to go like old school iron sights is even more Ali, isn't it? Even more kudos to the to the submariners. Well, <laughs> it's Ali in the jungle. <laughs> it's Ali in the jungle. But, were, um, they, were you but, on the carbines? But yeah, the, on the short yeah, the barrel, the, the carbines. Okay, I thought you might have said something different, but then there's no point. No, it? and then uh, and a couple of GPNGs that you could mount on the on the fin. Right. Yeah, I got you. But uh, yeah, so that, that that was it basically. So daily routine. Talk me through daily routine. You're on the sub. You just, you've just, you've just gone, you've just gone, you've just, what's the word when you you push off, you deploy? Yeah, so you, uh, you, you leave the, when you leave the wall and you go to harbour stations, it's the first thing you do, which basically is just navigating the, the boat out of wherever you are. Um, and then everyone has a specific job for, for that. Um, and you'd probably be doing that for about an hour. And then once, once the whole boat's done that, then you fall into your watches. So first watch and second watches, which is when you pick up your, your six on six off rotation. So they, you know, they serve meals like normal breakfast, lunch and tea. But depending where you are, you might be getting up from your rack to your feet, you know, for your evening scran. But then you just come in on watch or whatever. So you, you, know, you would do your watch and then, um, you know, then we, we would have your meal and, and then rack out and then, you know, showers optional <laughs> but no honestly i mean i, I think you know the, the submariners do get a bad rep for as well for for not being the most hygienic but in our defense you know a lot of the time you're out uh, depending on what you're doing again you can't get you know the, sh the water's off you're not allowed to get a shower because they, you know they need to conserve water because of whatever we're, you know we're doing so you know sometimes you don't even have the ch the, the choice to, to to get a washer you just get used to stinking i think you're making the mistake of addressing the issue you you're making the mistake of well you I brought like, you brought it up so i, I, I like to, just i, to I know the feeling because you know. i i serve a three para and they got the nickname gun g3 right which nice. i'm not going to go any further with that conversation than that because i'm not because i don't want to fan the flames right? no. but i shower regularly right <laughs> you apparently don't no, now <laughs> Well, old habits die hard. What can I say? <laughs> um, so that's it. You 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 settle into your watches. What about what's? Oh, I don't know if you can talk about it. How does things change? No, I don't know if you can talk about. It. I was going to ask you about about alert states and how things change. Yeah, I mean, you know, you obviously get various states, and if you go to action stations, basically, if you you know, if you were on, 
uh, you know, if you're tracking something, for example, and you came into contact with it, then you would be on action stations. So then you would, you know, obviously on a higher alert, uh, higher alert. So the people are, are manning um, even the stations you're on. Like you'll probably have, you know, if it's that serious, then you probably have one or two guys doing the the, the same thing. Because you know, just to to double check that, you know, if if things get real really fast, that the, you know we're accurate in in what we're doing. So. For action stations, things become even more intense um, than you know than 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 they already are. But you, you're kind of in a, that state of alert the whole time, anyway. And because there's so many things can go wrong on on a on a boat without any, um, you know, uh, for, foreign action or, or foreign contact, but just because of the nature of the submarine, you know, you need to be switched on because one, you know, press do the wrong thing at the wrong time and you know there's a, a whole host of stuff can go wrong on the on the boat itself when when is when you when when you have to go to action stations what happens what happens to the watch that's on rest so de depending on what it is depending on on the nature of it most of eight you know maybe most of the time it's dealt with by the on watch guys but if it's if it's that serious which is not, you know, it not always is, but, you know, there is times when it starts there and, and then everyone's up. Everyone's up and in position fighting the boat because then, you know, you're in a position there where, you know, everything needs to be manned because, you you know, you might be doing evasive manoeuvres or you might be doing something, um, you know, more dangerous and, and the risk of, of losing the boat is, you know, is real to, to, to whatever that may be. So, you know, every station needs to be manned. And I think, you know, we mentioned the dolphins earlier on you know, part of getting your dolphins is you need to understand um, how to fight and operate the boat pretty much yourself as a, as a single submariner. So the, the responsibility you have is that you could be, you know, in the in the forward escape compartment, for, for example. Something could go tits up with the rest of the boat. All the bulkheads are isolated and you're, you're the only guy at the front and then you've got the uh, escape hatch there that could potentially need to operate there's a um a secondary sort of weapon system there that you may need to 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 fire off there's a manual override for hydraulics and electric you know the electric system so any number of things could be going wrong and it could be down to you to to resolve it because you're the only one there isolated in, in that area of the boat so you know they, they do get you do have a lot of responsibility and you do need a lot of knowledge of, 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 of that submarine, you know, even if it's not your job. You know, a lot of it in the Navy, in other parts of the Navy skimmers, which are the, you know, surface fleet, which is what we what we call them, is, you know, you'll go on a on a ship and they'll be like, you know, be like, where's this, mate? And they'll be like, don't know. Oh, where's this department? Don't know, it's not my job. You know, you don't get any of that on a submarine. You know, everything is your job, even if it's not your your day job. You still need to have an understanding of it because it could could, could come down to you to you know to save that that bit of the boat or get some lads off if necessary. So to clarify, submariners are better than the skimmers. One hundred percent better than skimmers, <laughs> uh, and they know it. <laughs> just just triggered everyone <laughs> in the navy. Just triggered Simon Piles. We triggered triggered Gavin Tuak. I've lost I've lost multiple subscribers. Yeah, but you know. It's a hard truth, but <laughs> <laughs> the, the sooner they come to terms with it and move on, the better for everyone. That's what I was saying. When did they stop smoking on submarines? Uh, that's before uh, my time, I think. But I think it was getting, I think it was up to the, to the smoking ban 
I think like the the national sort of smirking ban in public. But you know, you can still smirk on. Well, I understand they're stopping this now. I think the Navy is going to try and be the first service to be. I don't know how they worded it, tobacco free or smoke free. So they're not even going to want you to take any tobacco on board. They've done this anymore. already, I think. I think they've done, I think they've announced it already. Yeah. So you can't even smoke so you can't smoke on any naval base, <coughs> as as far as I understand it, or station or or ship or boat, yeah. So they, they they want to be in a negative tobacco, which you know, at at the point when I was on, you could still smoke on you know, you could go if you were a smoker. And you and you were you know you're on the surface you could go to the fin and you had a break you could have a cigarette you know on, on the bridge or whatever you know and there was no issue with that but obviously you couldn't smoke smoke couldn't smoke below decks but I think it was only only recent early two thousands where things changed drastically for submarines where there was like a golden age of submariners where they were like you know genuine pirates with a disregard for for anything, for their own safety or anyone else's, where you know they weren't even wearing rig, that you know they weren't even in uniform half the time. They were you know shirtless or you know wearing what they wanted. You know there, there was a lot of alcohol on board, and you know there was a, a previous generation of boats, S boats, which were before the T boats, and everyone was like they were infamous for just party boats. Basically, they were out, you know they were out of control. In, in <laughs> you know even when they were out working, they were like you know hammered or you know half cutting around half naked pissed up just like in charge of the the torpedoes or the the tea lamps or whatever but <laughs> you know so the, a, a real golden age but you know it's like anything nowadays you have to you have to toe the line do you get a lot of uh turbulence if that's the right word when you when you when you're submerged do you get does the boat move about a lot i mean or is it smooth what is it like it's on the surface it's, it's, it's yeah the i mean on on the surface they're they're insanely unstable because because they've got a round hole and you know some of them they've got you know the fins uh, you know wings that they look like at the back but you know if you get a swell or, or some choppy water and you know the boats rolling all all kinds of all, all kinds of ways and even if you're at periscope depth, if there's a big swell, you can the boat will you'll feel it sort of lifting up and going down, as as you know as with the swell. Even though you you could be, you know, quite a few meters still below the the surface. Um, but once you're really deep, um, then it's like being on an aeroplane in that you, it's generally smooth, but sometimes you'll get a little bit of a bump, like turbulence, if you're changing like water temperature and things like that and when and when the boat moves for example if it's doing a quite a, um, a steep evasive maneuver it moves like an airplane so it'll bang over and then it'll like, go up or down you know whatever you're doing so it's that kind of feeling of of, of being on a plane when it, when it's going like fast and deep so it's a it's a funny experience um but yeah on the surface it's horrible it's really it's really rough i mean you, you know sometimes it's so rough that even even if we are you know, dived and were periscope depth or a bit deeper, you'll be strapped into, I mean, you've seen how small those racks are anyway, but you'll be strapped in with a seatbelt to try and get some, some kit because the the boat's rocking so violently that you'd be out, you'd, you know, you'd be out of your bunk if, you'd, if you didn't strap, your, literally strap yourself in to, to go to sleep. So, yeah, it can be, can be rough depending how deep you are. Do they allow a women eligible to go on submarines yet? They are allowed now on their bombers. 
Uh, I'm not sure how that how that works. So the nuclear deterrent, they're they're allowed on there. I'm not sure. They the V class. The V class. So I think that's because their their boats are a lot bigger. They're like three times the size of the of the um, T boats, and I think maybe the size can allow them to have different accommodation for for women on there. But you know, it's caused it's caused some ructions already with with you know relations on board. There's people like lost their jobs over it. Yeah, I can it already. Yeah. You know, even even like senior command, you know, command, um, you know, second in demand, second in command of a boat lost his job because some people underneath him had had a relationship and wasn't, you know, wasn't even anything to do with that guy. But they're saying like, you know, they're under your command. You should have kept an eye on it. You know, you're gone as well. So it's causing. Yeah, causing they need some, to wise up to that issues. though. I mean, because yeah. the thing is, with with the military becoming more, you know, trying to get more equality, like, um, yeah, sexual equality in there. It's the same same problem with the army man. It's yeah. a, it, it seems a simple thing to go. Yeah, we can allow women into whatever units, you know. On on um, man, and it, arguably, it's easier to accommodate that on ops. Yeah. Right. But it's in camp. It's in base is the problem. I mean, when I say it's easy to accommodate on ops, that's from my perspective. Being out on the ground, it's not from a submarine perspective, yeah. right? Yeah. Which again, so that be, when I'm saying it's harder to accommodate in base or in camp, or in a or on a boat, for example, it's harder to accommodate it because because like you just said, because emotions, men and women mix in, yeah. and that's just that side of it. Then you bring in all the um, the the change in infrastructure you need. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to make, it, well, I, I'm not going to go down this rabbit hole, but it's a fucking nightmare. Yeah. It's a nightmare. A, mi- a minefield. The the reality is, is that relationships are, are, it's going to happen the problem is is that I, I don't think well in that case he just said well that guy got sacked that's not great but it's going to have to be you know th- those relationships are going to happen in whatever way shape or form they happen it's going to be down to those people involved to make adult decisions yeah, about how, it, and, it, it, how, how exactly. and how it affects exactly they're, you know they're all adults they're all respon- you know they're all responsible adults and arguably you know highly trained whatever branch of the military you're in so you, you know people need to take responsibility for their own actions you know if they decided to to do that as long as they you know wasn't compromising the safety of the boat or the operation and whatever they're doing then you know they, they should be allowed to get on with it with their lives as adults you know but it's not for us to to decide no question for you though yeah Right, because when we've been talking, I've been thinking about Hunt for Red October. Yeah, I've been thinking about Classic. Torah, Torah, Torah. I'm thinking about. Oh no, that's a, that's an airplane movie, isn't it? Yeah, Torah, not, Torah, that's Torah. Not a submarine. Is, that, is it? Yeah, but they're special as well, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> what's What's the U-boat? No, it's Torah, 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 isn't it? Is it with the are the German U-boats? Yeah, I think no. Did, I, don't, I don't know. Anyway, I don't, right. I don't so I've been thinking about submarine films. Yeah. How close have you? Uh, what's the closest you've got to a uh, an uh, a foreign uh, a foreign uh, a foreign vessel without being detected? Well, <laughs> I've heard this dit right. <laughs> <laughs> Go on. And, I, and you know, I don't know whether it's true or whether it was even a British submarine involved. But so the story goes, they're out there. Spying on a on a on a foreign vessel, and um, I believe it was you know it was a new vessel. It, it was you know it was an unknown to the Allied forces, so you know there was valuable intelligence to be had. And the story goes that 
they were keeping a close eye on this this vessel when someone realized it was actually coming towards them full steam full steam ahead and they, they, they you know they've no way of getting out of the way so they they dive the boat and hope for the best and the and this uh, the foreign vessel scrapes right over the top literally scrapes right over the top no. of of this boat to to the to the point where they could actually when the, when the vessel got back so the story goes that they they could you know they, so the submarines on the outer casing have specialist tiles so basically help with you know sonar signature and, and, and radar and all that and the story goes that they could actually remove some of this foreign vessels tiles from the from the boat when they got back in they could actually recover some of this technology and turns out you know somebody got a commendation for it because <laughs> what 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 was potentially a disastrous event of of, of a collision you know turned into a like hands-on intelligence gathering um operation but so yeah really close Problem with those dips is you never know if they're true or not. You never know. And I, I mean, know. it sounds pretty far-fetched to me, but, but but you know, I'm guessing in some in some situations they get pretty close to. <laughs> to, to, to and 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 the, and the date is with that that it was you know still undetected by by the foreign um, vessel because of the sheer size of it. It was just like nothing had you know literally nothing had happened. So yeah, cra crazy dates. That's a good, probably false dip. That's a probably false dip, but it sounds good. And we've got a, we've got a, you know, big up the submariners somehow. You, you have to, right? But, um, yeah, no, um, some 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 crazy dips like that, you know, and even going into, you know, dips of going into to foreign areas undetected, you know, really close to shore is some like, you know, take some some nerve, and and you, and you hear that some some foreign powers. Powers will, um, you know, put mine. You know, even though it's illegal, putting mines down to prevent this kind of thing happening, you know, but allegedly it still happens. I mean, that takes a bit of, bit of nerve. So, question for you then: In that kind of situation, um, because you would have been taught this in training, maybe well, I'm not allegedly you've done it in real life. Yeah. But when you're going somewhere and it is really like uber covert now, because as I learned was on HMS Talent. Okay, one thing that were amazed me. <clears throat> so when you see it in the films, <clears throat> see it in the films, you hear the sonar. You're in the you're in the what do they call it the control room, the cons the what? Yeah, just like the 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 um, you know the, the, sonar bridge, like the, the, the bridge. The bridge, the bridge. Yeah. And you on the films you watch it, you can hear the sonar and that. When yeah. I was on HMS Talent and we were in there, my hearing was okay then. <laughs> back then back in those days. Yeah. And uh, I could hear the ping from from other vessels sonars. Like I could audibly hear the ping coming through the Oh, the sound coming, and I and I, I remember saying, what, "What's that?" And they said, oh, it's, "That's the sonar. You can—it's an actual sound that goes through the ocean." Yeah. I didn't realize that. Oh yeah. So, can, so my point of saying, don't. Oh, I'm take just smiling because it reminded me of something else underwater so, sound, but we'll get on to that. All right. So, question is, when you that, uh, and the reason I tell that story is because that's how easily tra sound travels in the ocean, and when you have got the sensitive sound detecting equipment, yeah. sonar equipment, right? On the other ship, they're trying to detect a boat. Man, you guys, you must what? You must not be able to talk and stuff. Yeah, literally. If you're on um, action stations and you're in a in a hostile environment, 
um, then yeah, literally you have to whisper and you can't, you know, stomp. You have to be careful how you walk around the the books. Literally, you know, walking up a ladder, they could pick that up. You know, they'll, that's why, you know, you have the water shortages because they have to turn off, you know, anything that's not essential, they, you know, they turn it off and they're not running. You're not allowed the TV on, they, you know, you know, simple, silly things like TV in the mess. You're not allowed to watch TV because they, they pick up on the on the sound of the TV, you know, all the cooking equipment. Because um, the TV will give off electrical distortion, right? Even well, if not, you have it on a mute. Yeah, there, there's all sorts of different. One is the yeah, frequencies that, you know, they're equipment that can pick up frequencies so so there is that but and then the other thing is that you know the sound itself so yeah you know if you're in that if you're in that environment literally you whisper you creep you're in you're in um you know red light you know like if you'd see on a film for red october or whatever and you're in that and you're whispering sneaking around the boat and literally but but for hours like you know you're in that sort of suspended state of um, suspense for for hours at a time, you know, while you're listening. Right. What happens when people snore? You probably probably get kicked. Probably get kicked in the ribs. Is it a common occurrence? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it does. Ha- it does happen. But um, yeah, I mean, ge- you know, generally you go give someone a shove if they if they're actually being that loud. You know, they they would. Li- it's like deadly serious. I mean, you can, you, you can you know, we laugh about it. But oh, I know. So I'm asking. Is, I can is, imagine because you know, it's, it's just the, I I analogize, uh, analogize it with you know I'm. Power edge, and we, you know, we're an infantry unit, and it's, you know, there's times you've got to be fucking silent. I understand it. Yeah. But what's different is, well, it's completely different because you're in your environment, which you're normally operating in, you know, on the boat, and then you've got to be completely silent. You can't walk. You trip over and bang your watch, for example. That's an issue. You snore, for example. Yeah. I mean, just being in a constant state of that. You, you work in back after you drop a spanner or, you know, something like that. It, it's happened, you know. It's not, yeah, because the difference, like, again, going back, the difference is with the way I used to have to operate, and a lot of a lot of other people, not just the infantry, but other attached arms that we do, you know, on-the-ground stuff. Yeah. You, 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 the kit you work with is built to be quiet. You're not working in a metal environment with big, flipping, cl- clunky things. Yeah. You you know, it's as, it's as, you can make it as safe as you want to make it. Yeah, it's, I would not want to be on a boat doing that. I mean, they still they still even now like give out you know the old Timbaland like deck shoes like boat shoes, you know you've seen them with like that people wear them for fashion now you know like that style of shoe, they still give them out for people in the control room. So if you are walking about, you know you've not got your big steaming bats on or your big boots on, you know clumping around the the control room. So the, the, you know, there's still that you know the requirement for for quiet. But it's funny you say about sound traveling, but. One of the I thought it was a massive wind up when when I first joined the the service was that there's a thing called the underwater telephone, Go on. and I'm like, you take it a piss, and because obviously I'm older as well, I'm thinking I'm not having this young kid like taking a piss out of me, telling me about <laughs> you know underwater telephones. He thinks I'm like born yesterday. Do you know what I mean? So, but but it turns out it's a genuine thing that if you're close enough to another vessel. You can just basically broadcast the sound of of your voice through the water, and it'll it'll pick it up. But <laughs> you have to talk like mega slow. So when you hear it, it's like, "Hello, are you receiving me?" <laughs> and I'm like, "Fuck off! How is that a real thing? You know what I mean? We're on a we're on a boat. You know, mil- millions of pounds worth of." of the Navy's finest equipment and we've got some bloke, you know, on a loudspeaker under the water talking like that. 
but it's a genuine, <laughs> it's a genuine thing. <laughs> yeah, the underwater <laughs> telephone. Um, right. How do we get? How do we go? How would you go from Submariner? So you must have left at thirty-seven yeah. to Intemperance Knives. Talk yeah. me about that. So I mean, I, you know, like I mentioned with my with my grandfather there when. He's you know, had some war debts and apparently met um, in his time during the war. It said he'd met you know William Sykes of Bourbon Sykes fame um, for those guys developing their knives, and he'd done some time out in in Burma. And you know that that sort of knife fighting knife culture is where the FS knife was kind of the idea was born from. From those guys doing that, um, involved in in that policing and, and different activities in like I think it was Shanghai or somewhere out there in, in the east and so he had a, a lot of dits about about that and um and knives in general and an interest and I'd done um engineering when I left school as an apprenticeship and part of that I'd done some some metal work and some blacksmithing and I'd had I'd, I'd made a few um and had an interest um fast forward to you know oil and gas the navy um got injured on uh, on a deployment on on the boat, and I'd spent. And when I come back, I'd spent some time at Headley Court, which you know, was was open. Um, <coughs> it's moved now, so so it's not a military hospital now. But back then, um, Headley Court down in London, I'd spent some time there um, <coughs> recovering. And um, a part of their like rehab and, and recovery program, they can have you like you know going in the work. They have the prosthetics workshop on site there, which I think is manned by. I think RAF engineers or someone like that, man. But basically, because of the, you know, the a lot of the the wars, um, ground wars had, 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 had slowed down and they wasn't getting the personnel through through there. It, you know, basically it was there, but they wasn't really doing very much with it. So you could, as a patient, you could go down there and do like woodwork or metal work, just something to get you up and about, out of your room, get you working and moving again. And I thought, oh, I used to enjoy doing that with uh, with like the old knives. So maybe I'll just give that a go. So I just got back into it there, um, <clears throat> just making some some knives, basically just to give me something to do and just something to as a focus to get me up and about. Um, so it, it was kind of born again then, and that sort of reignited reignited that passion that I had from previous talks with my with my granddad and, and all that about the development of these knives. And I thought, yeah, I think I'd love to do that as a you know as a hobby, basically. Um, and then through the wounded, injured, and sick um, sort of environment or, or community, if you like, uh, before I got discharged, I was lucky enough to um, to meet like a few Americans and go to America um, a couple of times and meet some some servicemen there. And we were talking about knives and you know development for of knives for you know for military use, and and it just sort of grew from there. And I thought you know there's more. The more I looked into it, the more I was excited about being able to do that as a potential way to earn a living but also you know just interested in 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 continuing a way of being involved with specifically like the military side of things you know if i can produce something that could potentially be used by military personnel you know i'd love that because then i'd still be involved in you know giving blokes or, or women some some decent kit that they could use in that environment you know, even though I was no longer in uh, in that environment. So, you know, there's a few reasons why I sort of got into it. And then and I thought, if I'm going to do this for real, you know, I need to to, to develop something that's going to be, you know, really usable. I don't just want to do it as a, 
you know, token sort of, you know, look, you know, look what I've made. I wanted to do it and I wanted to do it like well and the best, but also fit for, for purpose. So it took a lot of research in speaking to guys in the US and, and the UK um, in who were using knives in, in, in hostile environments and sort of asking them what their requirements were, what they found in the past, what they found now was available. Um, and, and luckily, you know, I got to speak to some some guys who were, you know, hands-on in, in those environments. You know, the US guys who were involved in um, some, some now involved in some contracting work over there and uh, in, in the Middle East, so they were like talking about concealment and what sort of backup um, knives they'd use so got some good input from them plus the one of the doctors I had in in part of my recovery he was um, formally attached to um, pool so he had some some real hands-on experience and he was also a bit of a knife a knife guy so speaking to him quite a lot and, an, and another guy who was formerly the um, at one point was a sergeant major at pool I've become really good friends with with him and he's also given me some some big input on you know what those guys were using what worked what didn't so i thought yeah you know really i could do you know i could do something with that so then you know the idea was there did a bit of like intelligence gathering and started working on some designs got them sent out to a couple of different guys for some prototypes for some use and some feedback and that's where the sort of the idea was born born then and i thought you know i'd really like to give this a, a go and turn it into a business <clears throat> but you know it, just because I knew I, at that point I knew I was coming out of the military, you know. Sadly, you know, I, because I went in so late, I thought I'd be in for life, you know, for life until retirement age. That, that was the plan. But obviously, that was um, that was not going to be the case. I knew I was going to be medically discharged with my uh, my physical injuries. Um, so I just needed to start thinking about a plan, you know, a, pl a plan for coming out, a transition. But you know, it was not easy in in the fact that you know we live in the UK and knives are for some people are a taboo subject you know and some companies who who would traditionally help veterans in recovery pathways or transitions they wouldn't touch it because of the nature of it um you know some other charities like well we can't give you money for a startup for this because it because of the nature of what you're doing so even within you think like the veteran community and the, and the charities are helping veterans transition even within that environment even though we're coming from a military environment where these are legitimate, you know, military tools or tools for campcraft or survival or whatever, there was still that resistance to, to you know, just to the fact it was knives. So it's been really difficult to set up a company um, around knives and, and especially sort of tactical knives because, you know, people just don't don't want to be associated with it in, in, a, in a corporate, you know, in a corporate UK environment. Yeah, it'd have to be a specific kind of company or in a specific kind of industry for that. I mean, it's the, it's the whole, you know, it's the whole bearded veteran thing, right? Isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> That's what it is. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You know, um, it's a challenge, but you know, I mean, it can be overcome. I mean, can't we've, it? we've got there. You know, we've got we've got products to market now, like you know, proven, um, proven, you know, knives fit for purpose. You know, for tactical applications, and then you know. We've got there, and it's you know it's early days for 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 us as a company, but you know I'm pretty I'm pretty excited with with where it can go. You know, given our UK military, something that you know I believe was missing in in that you know tactical knives. You know, there's not many people I know or any companies I know in the UK that are doing 
what we're doing with with you know handmade tactical knives is you know, there's plenty of knife makers out there custom knife makers but actually saying look this is what we do these are our core products you know i don't know anyone else that's actually doing that so which is what specifically which is specific tactical knives. tactical knives you know for, for for hard use situations yeah yeah and you know there's plenty of people doing sort of bushcraft knives and that kind of thing which is which is good but they're not always fit for purpose in a you know military environment which mm. is which is what prim primarily our knives are designed for yeah and 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 your knives look alley mate yeah exactly they, and they, they, they look good but but that's just you know they were developed for a specific purpose and that's how they look you know so they you know they were designed for for a function it just so happens that they do you know they look they look the business as well but that's not you know didn't want to design good looking knives you know i just wanted to design knives that i that I'd do a job i was the um how has when did you set it up so before you left yeah so before i left um started on the prototypes um you know a couple of years a couple of years back um and then just started getting them out to friends people i knew who was who was still out there um and then you know getting the feedback from them and, and then we we got sort of finalized the the final lineup um probably just in time for me to to leave and then just been sort of steadily growing over the last year in, in, into the point now where i've just come to um started on the social media on instagram which i wasn't really doing before um so started to try and promote it on the on you know on the socials and and in the veteran community what's trying. the what's the instagram handle so it's intemperance underscore knives temperance underscore knives yeah and you can see obviously the link to our website um on there but oh you got a website set up already have you? yeah so there, there's a if you look on the profile there's a link to the website there so yeah we're fully fully good to go but what i didn't want to do is as a business is just come to you know start putting it out there but then saying yeah but you know we've not got a website or you know we're, we're working on this but it's not ready yet you know i wanted to come to market with a you know with with the products ready to go with you know with everything ready um and, uh, you know and being able to to provide it um you know straight off the bat rather than saying you know i've got this idea but you know it's a few months in the working or whatever yeah i think it's become a little i've been thinking about this a lot recently because i've been talking to a couple of companies veteran owned just to help try and support them and um in fact you know what i've spoken to i spoke to two two this morning uh three in, three in the last two days so two this morning one yesterday yeah. none of them got a website no uh, no, I tell you, like one of them's got. A website. I, I think it's madness. Well, I, well, the reason I'm reading it up is I, I think these days it's not as much madness, right? Because you have, because really, I think all the website provides these days for a company that sells a product, right? Yeah. I think really, when we're talking about what social media is like these days, all a website provides is a is a the main thing is a is a is a, a function to 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 pay. It's a function to pay. Yeah. Or, and then the secondary role is to persuade you to buy. Because you, because to get to a website, right, these days, right, people will find your website yeah. through Instagram. Yeah. It, it goes through social media first. Yeah. Right? That's how, yeah. It, that's yeah. how it happens exactly. these days. Exactly. And, and that's why we've come, you know, started the, the but, Instagram. But what, what the facilities you, are, you have on social media now is you can, you can do everything from generate a lead. Yeah. 
generate a lead through a potential customer to sell them the product which yep. even having a website you can sell on instagram you can sell on facebook unless, and that's what i'm saying i think website thing unless you're a knife company because they, they it goes against their community guidelines so i can't pay you know like you could do a paid promotion to promote your profile on instagram as a business i can't do that because it because the you know but the business is selling knives it goes against their, their guidelines so we can't promote any of our um, posts or stories or you know any anything of that nature we we can't promote it on instagram and we can't have a um as far as i'm aware the last time i tried to do it they, they wouldn't allow it was, you know you can just set up to buy the products through instagram like you say you can click on a post and it'll show the product and the price or because it's because of the nature of what we do they don't you know they won't allow uh, that function that's a pain in the ass yeah it's been difficult honestly you know even to get um, a bank account for the company. You know, we're we're a limited company. You know, fully legit. But even you know, even back in the early days, to get in a bank account because we we were a knife company, the mainstream banks were like, nah. That's bonkers. No, thanks. but if you sell alcohol or sell tobacco, <laughs> you can go and get a bank account. It's crazy. That's mental. It's unbelievable. It's the 21st century. It, but you know, we're we're. How do cutlery companies do it? How yeah. do cutlery companies do it? No, I don't. I don't know. I think if we were. You know, there's a lot of companies I do do like chef's knives and that sort of thing. And I think if you maybe if you were more that way inclined as a, as a company, they, they, you know, they might be a, they might tolerate a bit more, or, or there might be ways around it. But because of the the core products of what we do, then they, they wouldn't allow it. But I was adamant that look, you know, this is what we, we want to do as a company. That there's a need for it, you know, and in society, like you can't ignore the fact that people in you know especially in the military environment they go and do a certain job and they need certain tools to do it you know and this is this is part of that requirement and you can't just if you don't like it you can't pretend it doesn't happen you know it happens people people need this stuff and as long as we're being responsible as a company and we're not you know we've got the eight the age guidelines on on the website and the, and before people buy and plus the prices they you know they're high-end um knives the you know the premium prices so they're not really accessible to you know somebody younger who might be irresponsible and going out to to do something it's you know irresponsible stupid. So they wouldn't come to you for that anyway it's like been difficult. It's, they would go somewhere which can sell knives that's a problem they would go yeah, to exactly. asda and pick up a fucking kitchen knife yeah. or they would go to the local DIY pound, shop. or the pound land yeah, exactly or they get their 18 year old 19 year old 20 or pound land yeah cousin they go in there and go to fucking pound land they, again. that just frustrates me about you know it's probably another controversial topic if we ever got onto you know to knife, love, like knife crime you know knife knife crime uk <laughs> i mean if you look at the statistics one one it's massively political you know depending on like policing and funding that there's a you know that's a massive element but i'm not saying there's not you know in some in some areas it's not an issue but if you look at what's involved in like you say in that crime it'll be a screwdriver or a chisel or a knife from the pound, like you know, he can't bring every tar everyone with that same brush and um, and say because you know because you make knives, you're responsible or you're an irresponsible company. You know, it just doesn't. It's just yeah, it's it's not it's not right and it's not you know it's like this cancel culture. They can't just pretend we don't exist because they don't like it or don't fit in with uh, you know their their agenda. So how are you selling? Have you got distributors? No, so we sell we sell direct. From from our website, um, I was in some early talks with a couple of um, sort of knife 
distributors in here and in Europe, uh, a European one. Um, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure if we'll go down down that route. route. Um, depends, I guess, how how the company grows and what the demand is. And the other issue is obviously if you sell into America, is that you know the the import um, tax that, that that they have to pay. But you know, um, so I'm not sure whether we would need to put some with a distributor in the US. I'm not sure. I think it's too too early to 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 say we've sent some out there. You know, just as as private customers that have been buying them. So. You know, it's not on. It's not unreasonable. People expect that if you know they're buying some from from the UK, then they, you know there's a there's an import tax, same as if we were buying from the US. But that was another reason why. You know, I had some feedback from a guy the other day, um, a parachute, someone from the parachute regiment who would bought one of our knives and he'd messaged me and said, you know, it's good to find like a tactical knife, but in in the UK and they don't we don't have to pay you know import tax from the US. And that was another reason why I wanted to do it is because to give our guys access to the same things like some of the American guys have got, but without having to pay the, you know, they've got something that's British made. It's a veteran company and they don't have to pay crazy extortion, you know, import taxes to, to, to get their hands on it. So, Where'd you do, where'd you do it all, mate? Where, where, you, where are you making them? Well, started off um, making it in a, in, my, in my shed. Well, obviously the hospital was when it first started. Then got a, then it got a shed. Hang on, you, hang on. You started making knives in the hospital. Yeah, the, how'd you do that? The headlock off. Yeah, but, the, uh, but uh, in uh, well, yeah, I sneaked in. <laughs> I sneaked in the, <laughs> sneaked in the steel, and just didn't really advertise to to you know the powers that be what I was actually doing, <laughs> and just cracked on, just cracked on with it, you know, on the on the DL. But um, yeah, no, literally, I couldn't. The there was like I was working with like one of the occupational health nurses there, and I was like, look, this is what I'm doing. She's like, well, you know, just don't just don't tell anyone else about it, will you? I'm like, okay. But um, so yeah, controversial was a nice in the hospital. But you know, so that's where it started. And then now we've got um a bigger workshop in Huddersfield. So we we do everything from there. And we've got other people that do um the Ceracote, which is the ceramic curtain that we use. Um we've got a guy down in Essex who 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 specializes in that. So we, we don't do that in-house because that's a specialist um a specialist thing, so we get him to do that, and then the, the knives come back to us for for sharpening and, and sending out. But yeah, everything's done on on site in 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 Yorkshire. From from start to finish, how long does it take to make a knife? Uh, depending assuming, on assuming assuming the design is done. Yeah, assuming the design. I mean, that was the hardest thing was getting the designs nailed. But you know, now the design's done. You're looking at maybe maybe six or seven hours um, to get pre pre ready to uh to be coated so you're looking at a, a, a say it goes to be coated and comes back sharp so you're looking at probably 15 to to 16 hours on our side plus you've got the side of the guy who's doing the the coating so you know 15 16 hours plus his better time so 20 hours maybe all told for, for one knife so what about the uh, so apart from the, the the steel bits? Yeah. What about the other, like the handle that isn't steel and stuff like that? Who's manufacturing those? Is that you? Yeah. Well, so no. We, when we we use um, primarily we use like G10, which is um, you know common now in in the knife and gun industry. There's a lot of gun scales handles are used. They use G10 because it's really what's G10? It's G10. So it's a it's a laminate. It's a glass laminate product so, so i'll show you one of the knives and, it, and that i brought and it and it's um it's ma it's really grippy Wait, well grab it now you're talking yeah, I'll, 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 I'll grab one now don't run off 
Come back. Grabbing the deodorant. That's what he's doing. Rushes Tash. In his admin bag. Yeah, I was trying to... I was, while we were talking, I was trying to bring up the Instagram. Look. Intemperance underscore knives. How oh, fuck he brought an axe? I brought the... Look at Jump right down behind that mic. Oh, right. Okay. So if you look from oh, mate, that feels like bloody steel, that. I can try yeah. to hold this up. So it's, it's really, camera. you know, it's, it's really tough. Um, you know, it's temperature resistant, it's chemical resistant, but it's still really grippy. So if you've got wet hands or bloody hands, you know, you're still going to be able to grip. I see you've been using this. Yeah, that's a demo one. So we did it. You know, if you'll see on the Instagram, we smashed a car up with that. Literally, <laughs> literally, you could take the chop. Literally, we, literally, we could chop the car roof off with with with, with the axe. Like, could could chop through the uh, the column, you know, the center column or whatever it's called. Another one. So, so that, that that seems lighter than what it should be as well. It's yeah. good good weight to it. So that was part of the design was you know having something that was heavy enough to do. I wasn't, I wasn't complaining by the way. I was saying it, that's good. No, so I mean, you know, it's that's eight. It's quarter it's quarter inch thick. This this axe so i mean it's a heavy you know it's a hefty piece of steel but you know we engineered it to be um you know light enough to carry on your kit and wield uh, but but still heavy enough where it could you know you could breach with it you know it could help you get through locks or through doors or through windows you know and that's why it's got the pry bars at the bottom so so it's not just you know dead weight you can do multiple things with with, with one piece of kit you know and that was the, the idea behind that i think this is a boot knife that, yeah, I'm a boot, boot on neck carry. Well, I designed that flat because a lot of guys who are carrying on, on a plate with plate carriers, you know, if you've got a, a bulky sort of traditional round handle shape in a sheath, you know, that was it was bulky on the kit and they want it to be as close as possible to their, to their body. So we designed it, or designed all of the first range tactical knives. We designed them all really flat for that, for that reason. So when you've got them carried on you, plate or, or wherever it is on your kit you know it's a slit it's a lower profile so that was the reason behind the, the design the, I hold out to the camera though that's proper light but this g10 that's an interesting material isn't it yeah i mean it's like it's like i say it's really it's really hard wearing it's really um it's heat resistant you know it's chemical resistant so you, you know we need something that's going to be stand up to the abuse that you know, you could potentially give the knives or the environment that you're potentially going to be in with the knives. And we do, I mean, if you see, we do like a wooden handled version of the dagger, but but purely for aesthetics, you know, people like to have that wooden... The FS dagger. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, so we do like a modern version of, of that. So we call it a combat dagger, because obviously you can't call it the FS dagger, but basically it's designed for the same principle it, as, as the FS knife. Uh, it's a double-edged dagger, but we do with a broader tip so one of the thing, one of the feedback that I got from guys who were actually using the FS is that the tips would often break off. They'd often ping ping the tips off. So we did a broader, broader tip. So it was a bit more robust and stand up to a bit more abuse. And we do a wooden handled version of that. But again, we use a stabilized wood, which means that it's it's been injected with a, a resin, so it won't you know it won't crack or fatigue with you know water or sunlight. It's not as durable as the G10, but you know, if you were still wanted to take it into that kind of environment, it would it would stand up to it. But mainly, that's for aesthetics. You know, the old school guys like a like a wooden a wooden handle. And, we, and we're going to do more things. We've got some coming out next year where we've got camo, actually where this is um, black 
um, Serico, we've got a camo um, pattern. So it's actually ceramic curtain, but it's got the camo you'd have baked onto it basically. That's so it's going to look, you know, it's going to look pretty good, you know, and functional, but and, and hand wire, hard wearing rather than just looking good. It's actually going to be, you know, functional. So we've got them coming in New Year. So pretty excited about that. But we just wanted to start off with the, you know, the flat black um, range first of all, you know. It's Ali Kip, Thanks. This is Ali Kip. Yeah, it's mega. But yeah, so we're, you know, pretty excited about it. And like I said, you know, don't know anyone else in the UK that's doing this right now. Who's just pure, purely focused on the on the tactical side. Good mate, it's going well. It seems to be going well for you. Um, <coughs> hope it continues. We've, yeah. we've, uh, we anything else we haven't talked about that you want to talk about? No, I don't think so. We got obviously on the knives. You my craziness of joining the the military later on. I mean, there's there's um. You know, our, our come to be to be out of the the military was you know pretty pretty unpleasant. I think we touched on that about me being stuck, you know, stuck on board for for no, a no, few no, weeks. No, we didn't talk about that at all. We How talked about that before. Ah. yeah. So we so you know when we we were on an operation in 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 area, um, we, you know obviously where we where, where we sh you know arguably shouldn't have been, and uh, I came a cropper and ended up with some. Uh, some nerve damage and, and some damage to my back. Um, and because of, the, because of the nature of the operation and where we were, you know, I was stuck on board for almost five weeks before we got, we, you know, we finished the job we were there to do. And then by the time we, you know, sailed back to, to a, like a neutral area where I could be casivacked, casivacked off. So that was, you know, that was like a, you know, glamorous end to, <laughs> to my very brief um, military career. But, you know, that, you know, it was it was it was bad at the time, but you know, without that happening, you know, I wouldn't be where I am now with, you know, with the company and and doing something, you know, I'm equally, arguably more passionate passionate about. So, you know, maybe everything happens for a reason, and you know, that's where I am now. Right, mega, it is mega. I oh, know, like you said, sometimes shit goes pear shit, but you come out smelling the rose the other side in yeah. some way, shape, or form. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and it's good being your own boss, right? Oh, I mean, yeah, so far, so good. Yeah, apart from, you know, get pressure from the missus about. <laughs> Sold any more knives today? But yeah, no, it's good. You know, it's good. I'm excited. You know, we've got some good feedback from, from guys in, you know, in the military and, and surrounding industries about the knives. And I think, you know, it's not all. It's not always about the the money. You know, the money side is good. Because obviously, as a company, you need to be viable. But you know, if we're providing stuff that's useful to guys who are still doing a shit job, you know, then you know that that's 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 the reward a for me. A difficult job, shit job, yeah, difficult job, yeah. difficult job. Yeah, I mean that that's the reward for me. You know, getting feedback from people who who are, who are using this on on, you know, in, in live action places uh, environments. And you're getting good feedback. You know that's enough for me. You know I don't, you don't, I, you know I don't care about how many I sell. You know just to just to know that they're they're out there doing a good job and they've helped some you know some people. And you and you know once once we get more established as a as a company, it would be good to be able to start giving back to you know to the veteran community in 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 terms of like veteran charities and things like that. Because you know having been been through it and been through the the wounded, injured, and sick side, you know you see how how you know some people are struggling with with getting access to certain things and i just think you know some some of the charities there 
you know, we could could do with a, a little bit of a help and a bit of a boost, and, I, and I'll be glad, you know, when our company can can be in a position to to help those guys out as well, you know, help the charities out. Yeah, mega, mega. Last question: Why is, why uh, why is it called Intemperance Knives? <laughs> yeah, funny one. Um, it just I just wanted a, I just wanted a name that would you know stand out for one, you know, something that was memorable. But Intemperance, like basically the the interpretation is like you know, without moderation, so like without um you know sort of to to um you know to to with like abundance so basically doing something and doing it sort of a bit over the top which is kind of like what we wanted to do is like you know sort of overbuild our knives and you know without without holding back basically which is what we wanted to do with you know with the idea so hence intemperance and plus i thought it sounded it sounded good <laughs> what's the website as well so the, the it's uh, www.intemperancenives.com. Temperancenives.com. Yeah. And it's intemperance underscore knives on Instagram. Yeah, that's the one. Aaron, it's been a pleasure talking to you, mate. Thanks a lot, mate. We'll do it again. Thank you. Great. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you like the podcast, listen this episode and you enjoyed it then let the guests know find them on social media um and leave an itunes review please or apple podcast review or whatever podcast app you use leave us a review on um on it yeah i'd appreciate that um and uh, if you prefer to watch your stuff as opposed to listen then we're on youtube go on youtube and watch us waffling away not just listen to us waffling away waffling away uh just search for h hour podcast on youtube we will pop up um what else what else what else what else oh yeah you Want to take the leap and become an ultra fan? Part of a little uh, Uber community. A small, but not indistinct community of ultra fans for the podcast. And you can go and sign up at patreon.com forward slash HK podcasts. We have a little uh, a little Discord group going, which is like a social media app. We got a, um, we got regular comms going on. We have a Zoom call every month. Just me and my Patreon supporters. No one else, and they get inside info all of the time, all the time. And I get access to all the podcasts early. So go to patreon.com forward slash HK podcasts. If you want some HR merchandise, go to shop.charliecharlie1.com. Um, yeah, that's it. Thanks again to the sponsors. The Aardvark Group, saving lives, protecting property, protecting assets through technical innovations uh, in the field of minefield clearance and uh, unexploded ordnance clearance around the world in mostly post-conflict zones go to aardvark.group to find out more and also thank you to rugby heroes raising money uh, to support military charities and therefore support the military community and they're doing that through rugby orientated fundraising events uh their website is rugbyforheroes.org rugby f-o-r heroes.org they are part of the founding behind the forces barbarians rsc already doing huge amounts um, with the help of Rugby Heroes and raising more much-needed money for military charities. They're also on social media, at Rugby Number 4 Heroes. That is it. Thank you for listening. Until next time, out. <laughs>